We'll turn this morning uh, again to the book of Hebrews. Uh, This morning, Hebrews chapter 3, I'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 6 of the third chapter of Hebrews, and then our focus will especially be on uh, the first three verses. So Hebrews uh, chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And let us pray. Father, again, we draw near to thee, and we thank you that the Most High is a prayer hearing God. And we thank you that we've already enjoyed the privilege of worshiping thee and lifting our hearts to thee and praising thee. Thank you that you are a glorious, faithful, holy God. And, And now these moments, I would pray again for the help of your Holy Spirit in conveying pure, holy truth. I I, I pray it would represent your holy intention. I I, I do ask for each one here that you would um, impart into them the the help of your Holy Spirit in discerning uh, the truth of Holy Scripture. And so we pray uh, together it would all be for thy glory and it would truly be for the good of our souls and and our own pilgrimage in this world, uh, seeking to just walk with you and be pleasing to thee. I, I pray our time together would, would serve the ends of increasing our devotion to thee and our love for thee and our delight in thee and our interest in thee. So just continue to guide us during this time together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is possible, probably more than possible, that um, most of you have been on a road trip of one kind or another And you're driving along, and uh, the road ascends, and just prior to getting to the summit, there's a sign that says something like scenic viewpoint, one half mile, and so you you pull over, and you look, and there's this panoramic viewpoint, so you can look back where you have been going for the last uh, several miles. And I I feel like uh, arriving at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1 is is something like that. It begins with this term, therefore, which is a a term that looks back over what has been covered, what has been stated, uh, whatever point has been made. It's the idea of consequently or in light of. Um, you don't start a conversation with the word therefore or begin a paper with the word therefore because there's nothing to look back on. No foundation has been established. The question here is how far back is the writer looking when he uses this particular term? At minimum, it includes what has just been said, as one commentator put it, wherefore, because Christ has taken our nature to himself and knows our needs. He's able to meet them. So in light of that, therefore, what follows? Uh, others point out that he could be looking back over the entirety of the first two chapters about the transcendent dignity of the Son of God. Uh, so the force of the command, consider, which is found in verse 1, it's an imperative, suggests that, um, that, that 
the author is looking back on the matchless excellency of Christ that has taken place throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I think the deliberate force of the command would lead our thinking in that direction, that it's not just the immediate context, but the full context of chapters 1 and 2 that he has in mind. But to kind of press the image of, of a, the imagery of a vantage point, you can see where you've been. In some cases, you can see where you're going. And, and here, it helps us to see where we're going. It's, it's to a comparison, at least in the short run, a comparison between our Lord and Moses, which will bring out the superiority of the person of Christ or the, the superiority, the supremacy of the person of Christ into prominence. Um, in, in the flow of thought, that might seem a bit anticlimactic since the writer has already made clear about the supremacy over Christ, over such magnificent beings as angels, angelic beings. <clears throat> but as we'll see in a little bit here, given the stature that Moses had in the minds of, of the people, such was not the case. So in, in this comparison, we'll see there's, there's similarity between the two, between Moses and, and Jesus, in that they are both faithful in God's house. And God's house here, the, the term recurs several times in these verses, it's, it's related to God's people. And, and so they are both faithful in God's house, but also we'll see a pronounced distinction between the two, that is between Moses and Jesus. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house. Jesus was faithful as a son over God's house. This is the same son that's referred to in chapter 1 and verse 2, who's heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. So this morning... I want to occupy our minds with this comparison between our, our Lord and Moses, our Lord and Moses, by means of three assertions, which I think will elevate our appreciation for the purpose, excuse me, for the person of Christ and increase our devotion to him. So in the fir first assertion is, uh, I would have you see there's what I'm calling a directed exhortation, a directed exhortation. The exhortation is the words consider. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. To consider is to, to notice here in a spiritual sense, to fix the eyes of the Spirit upon, is to give careful thought or consideration to something, fix the mind with a view to careful examination. So it's opposed to um, the idea of being hasty or superficial. Sometimes you might read the news and feel like you're hasty or superficial. You just fire through it. But if you're, you're reading a contract about something that you're buying, then you stop and you read it very carefully. That's more the idea here. In particular, I, I would have you notice three aspects of this um, exhortation or this command. I'd have you see or notice first the recipients of the command. This is why I'm calling it a directed exhortation. It's not intended for everyone. It's not like God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. So it's not going out to all people. But it's directed here to um, people that are marked by three kinds of qualities. <clears throat> Excuse me. First of all, they're addressed as holy brethren. Holy brethren. That's the first quality. They've already been referred to as brethren in verse 11 of chapter 2. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Again, in verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. And then again, in verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. But, but here what is added, this, this adjective holy. So it's a further description, holy brethren, a further description of what converted people are like. It's a designation of what a converted person is interested in. And that's because the Lord of glory has done something to them to make them that way. Verse 11 says, 
he, he who sanctifies and the ones who are sanctified. The, the word sanctify is the verb form of the adjective holy, and it means to make holy. This is what Jesus has done to people when he saves them. He sanctifies them, sets them apart. It's the idea of um, to make holy, to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. B.F. Westcott said it characterizes the, the nature of Christian fellowship. What do Christians have in common with each other? And the idea is we have holiness. We're holy brethren. It, it, it's what we have in common with one another. It's because, the nature, the, the, because of the nature of our union with the person of Christ who makes us holy. And in verse 10 of chapter 12, it makes a point that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. So as believers, we have all been baptized into the mystical body of Christ, and we've become sharers or partakers of his holiness. In chapter 7 and verse 26, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. So it's inevitable that those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ will have an interest in holiness. When we get to chapter 12 and verse 14 and probably 20 years from now or so, we'll see pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is a distinguishing mark of a converted person, holy brethren. <clears throat> but notice also they are designated as partakers of a heavenly calling. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Holiness pertains to their current character and interest. Heavenly calling bears upon the, the nature of their hope and their anticipation. The lexicon that I employ with respect to partakers, it's part participation in some common blessing or privilege. So it, it's the bond of union that they share together. Again, to quote B.F. Westcott, the Christian calling is heavenly, not simply in the sense that it is addressed to man from God in heaven, though that is true, but as being a calling to a life fulfilled in heaven, in the spiritual realm. So it's a life that is completely fulfilled in heaven. Um, it, not here, I mean, to state the obvious, the place where you and I live and we live out the dictates of the Christian life, it's not heaven. We're not there yet. It's not marked by pervasive holiness and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's, that's not it. Paul, in the very last letter that he, that he wrote before his martyrdom, he cited some of the tribulations that he was enduring in this world. In, in verse 8 of chapter 1, this is from 2 Timothy, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or, or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. In verse 12 of the same chapter, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia have turned away from me. In verse 10 of chapter 3, But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And then in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and, and the time of my departure is at hand. And he's not talking about a departure like from SeaTac to Omaha, but from Rome to heaven. It's, it's like to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the kind of journey he's talking about. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And then verse 18 of chapter 4, it writes, the Lord will deliver me from error every evil deed. And then he says this, will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. That, that's the import of partaker of a heavenly calling. It's fulfilled in heaven. Bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So the recipients of this exhortation to consider 
our Lord as an apostle and high priest. They're referred to as holy brethren on the one hand, but they're also referred to as partakers of a heavenly calling. And in third, they are those who have professed saving faith in Christ. Jesus referred to as the apostle and high priest of their confession, their confession. There's a deliberateness about this term confession because to, to unreservedly avow faith and trust in Christ in this world can be costly, as you know. We just read about that with respect to the apostle Paul. And so we're talking about a solemn and sincere statement of conviction and commitment and loyalty to the person of Christ. William Lane wrote, the term confession denotes a binding expression of obligation and commitment, the response of faith to the action of God. So the recipients of this exhortation, I think by implication, the ones will be predisposed to fully embrace it. They're holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, those who have professed faith in Christ. They've confessed him or professed him as their Lord and Savior. Secondly, I would have you see the subject, I should say the object of the exhortation. That is, um, the one whom Christians profess faith in here is called the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle draws our attention to um, being sent on a mission, and high priest is the culmination of that mission, the sacrificial death of the person of Christ. The ascription of the title apostle to our Lord, it could very well anticipate this comparison with Moses that we have made reference to. Um, Moses, although he is not specifically referred to as an apostle, fulfilled the function of an apostle by being appointed by God and sent by God. For example, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10, Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. That's an, an apostolic function. He's sent by God to, br- to bring people out of deliverance in bondage. William Lane wrote, although Moses has never designated an apostle, the conception of him as one called and appointed and sent by God stands behind the term. Now, this is the only time that our Lord is specifically designated as an apostle. However, as one put it within the New Testament, the idea that Jesus was sent by God is widespread and deeply rooted. Just to kind of give you an example, in Matthew 15, 24, he answered and said, I was sent. This is Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in Mark 9, 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Uh, Paul Ellingworth, who wrote, a, I think, a very helpful commentary on Hebrews, said it's particularly strong, this idea of him being an apostle in the Gospel of John, where the, the verb form of the term apostle, he points out it occurs 17 times of Jesus being sent by God. Just one example would be John three seventeen: For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And then he makes reference to another Greek term that means sent. It indicates it occurs 26 times in the Gospel of John, and an example would be John 4 34 Jesus said to them my food is to do the will of him who who sent me and accomplish his work so thirdly I would say under this heading the perpetual emphasis on our our Lord as being sent um, into this world on a mission of deliverance um, it brings into bolder relief the uh, conception we have of the world within with within which we live it helps us to think rightly about the world the fact that he is sent on a mission to rescue people in this world helps you and I to think rightly about the condition 
of people that need to be rescued in this world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 says this, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So verse 18 gives a true, accurate account of all unrepentant men and women. They are under condemnation because they have not repented. They are under the judgment of God in this world. You might have been in some churches, when you leave, there's a sign that says you are now entering the mission field. That is really good, because wherever there's collections of unsaved people, that's the mission field. You don't have to go overseas for that. It's everywhere. It's at your workplace. It's in the neighborhood. So this comparison between our Lord and Moses begins with an exhortation to consider our Lord as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, secondly, and more particularly with respect to this comparison, it's marked by mutual commendation. Moses and Jesus, mutual commendation. Notice verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him, that's Jesus, as Moses was in all his house or the house. This is what I mean by mutual commendation. Both our Lord and Moses, they, they were faithful in their respective spheres of serving God's house, is serving God's people. So this mutual uh, approval of each one is brought out even further by, by Moses, about Moses in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant with respect to our Lord in verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. And the idea of Jesus being faithful repeats what already was said in verse 17 of the previous chapter. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, as I indicated a few moments ago, I, uh, it might seem a bit anticlimactic in the flow of thought here for the writer to emphasize the superiority of Christ over Moses. He's already shown that he's superior over these magnificent angelic beings. <clears throat> but, but the comp- comparison is necessary. As one commentator put it, it's difficult to exaggerate the importance of Moses in Judaism and the veneration with which he was regarded. Another wrote, the writer begins his comparison between Jesus and Moses as a matter of necessity. And let me just give you, um, press this a little bit further and under this heading, uh, under mutual commendation, um, give you three reasons why this uh, comparison had to be made. First of all, as we have noted, that both Moses and our Lord are involved in spheres of ministry that could be apostolic functions. They were both involved in apostolic ministry. Jesus is clearly called an apostle. He carried on that kind of ministry. He was sent and commissioned by God. And with respect to Moses, um, that Moses was an apostle, as one puts it, in the general sense of the term, once sent from God on a mission, is clear from all that the scripture says about him. He was the great prophet and deliverer of God's people, commissioned by Jehovah from Mount Sinai. And, and the verb, which means to send a special prominence in the account of Moses' commission, let me just give you a little idea of that. Hebrews, excuse me, Exodus 3.10, Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 12 of Exodus chapter 3. He said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. In Exodus 5.22, um, this is Moses' return to the Lord, and this is, this is Moses speaking to God. And, and the thought here is, 
I really don't like being a part of this apostolic ministry. He says, oh, Lord, why hast thou brought harm to this people? Why didst thou ever send me? So, so here there's a kind of complaint on the part of Moses. I don't really like being a part of this apostolic ministry. Numbers 16, 28, Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. For, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. Well, and secondly, that, 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 both, um, uh, that, that both the Lord and Moses were engaged in apostolic ministry, that invites, uh, that invites comparison. But also, they, were, they both were involved in priestly functions. Jesus clearly referred to over and over as a high priest. But in, um, in Psalm 99.6, it begins with the words, Moses and Aaron, his priest. Moses and Aaron, his priest. So Moses is not only referred to as a priest, but um, there's examples of him pertaining, excuse me, there's examples of him um, exhibiting priestly functions. Let me just give you one from Exodus chapter 24. Moses wrote down, all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and he sent young men of the sons of Israel. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls. This is, this is um, priestly activity. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. <clears throat> and then thirdly, kind of relating to Moses' stature, uh, the unique religious status that Moses had also invited comparison. Apostolic ministry, priestly ministry, and then the, the unique um, stature that Moses had in the religious world, that also invited comparison. Um, there's a background, <clears throat> probably ahead of me on this one, of God speaking directly to him and puts him in a unique category. In Numbers chapter 12 and verse 16, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I the Lord shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? As William Lane wrote, the authority claimed for the son inevitably invited comparison with the unique authority of Moses as the man with whom God spoke more intimately and directly than with any ordinary prophet. So in just kind of summing up this uh, religious stature that Moses had, as one writer put it, <clears throat> excuse me, Moses was esteemed by the, the Jews far above any other Jew who ever lived. God had miraculously protected him as a baby and personally provided for his burial. Between those two points of his life were miracle after miracle after miracle. He was a man whom God spoke to face, face to face. He had seen the very glory of God and in fact even had this glory reflected in his own face for a brief while. After he came down from Sinai, the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. He was one of, one of those who led Israel out of Egypt. As Paul stresses in Romans 2, Jews had great confidence in the law, the Old Testament commandments and rituals were their supreme priorities. And to them, Moses and the law were synonymous. The New Testament often refers to the commands of God as the law of Moses. 
Moses not only brought the Ten Commandments, he also wrote the entire Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, which lays out the Levitical and other laws that governed everything the Jews did. Moses gave the plans for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. So Moses, like our Lord, performed apostolic and priestly duties. He also led the people out of bondage in Egypt. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, spoke directly with God. And the combination of all these factors invited comparison with Moses. And the point of commonality and mutual commendation, that they were both faithful in the discharge of their duties in the house of God with respect to the people of God. Well, then thirdly, this comparison um, is marked by radical subordination, mutual commendation and radical subordination. Here I'm thinking of the, the import of, uh, of verse 3. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. The idea of worthy is to be deserving, uh, to become thought of as worthwhile, honorable, or right. And here the comparison moves from, from mutual commendation to what I'm calling radical subordination, a clear superiority of Moses over Christ is affirmed. Now, some will point out that the author is making use here of a, a common proverb of the day, uh, the one who establishes the house has greater honor than the house itself. Uh, the one who builds the house has greater honor than the house itself. Many believe that was a common proverb of the day that he was taking advantage of. Let me develop our thinking here by means of two observations. Uh, the, the first one is that the glory or honor of the builder is greater than the house, is greater because the house or whatever is built owes its existence to the builder. The builder is the source or the reason for its being, for its reality. Um, for example, many of you have seen um, impressive mansion-like uh, homes. The seminary that I went to in Tacoma was a former warehouser mansion. It, it was pretty amazing with clear, unobstructed views of the Puget Sound. Had a five-bedroom carriage house, billiard room, pipe organ, servants' quarters, flower room, screening room, VIP suite, silver vaulted conservatory, a library, tennis courts. Um, if you're trying to get a visual, just think of our house. If you've been to our house, a lot like that. You know? So um, kind of kind of stately. There's a, a glory to those kinds of homes. You look at it, you're, you're struck with it. But the builder, the designer, has the greater glory because he is the source of its existence. The, the elegance, the stateliness, the grandeur, they're all reflections of the one who designed it and the one who built it. And Moses is to Jesus as the house is to the builder. He owes his existence to him. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house, the one through whom God made all things. It's like the relationship between God and, and the world. The heavens declare the glory of God, but they are not God. They're simply reflective of something, someone who has more glory, the one who gave it his existence, gives it its existence, gives it its reality. God is more glorious because he created them. They owe their existence to him. So the glory, the honor of the builder of the house is superior in kind to the house itself because it is the source, it's the reason for its existence. The excellence of the house is a reflection of the, the excellence and the ability and the creativity of the builder and or the designer. A second observation would be that the glory of the builder of the house is greater in degree than the house itself. The glory of the builder of the house is greater in degree, qualitatively, than the glory related to the, the, the house or the 
the structure itself. The text says he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So there's a qualitative superiority uh, with respect to the person of Christ. Moses reflected the glory of God, but Christ, the glory was intrinsic to Christ. It is inherent in Christ. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29, it says, It came about that when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, as he was coming down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So the glory that Moses displayed was real. It was the glory of God, but it was a reflected glory. But the glory of Christ, it's inherent in his being. It's a, manif- it's a manifestation of his manifold perfections. Moses' face shone because he reflected the real glory of the being of God. I have a Swiss military watch right here. And if I walk around the house during the daytime, I can tell what time it is. If I go into a dark room, I can't tell what time it is. But if I go back out again and I hold my watch up to a light, then I go into a dark room. It's luminous dial. Then I can tell what time it is. For a little while, then it fades. And the idea here is Moses' face shown for a while, but it's a reflected glory. Whereas the glory of Christ, it's, it's an inherent, intrinsic glory. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his person. So, so his glory is great. The glory of the creator, the glory of the builder is greater than the glory of the building. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and we are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face. The sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but, but their minds were hardened. For until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So the glory of Christ is superior to Moses because all who behold the glory of Christ are incrementally transformed into the image of the person of Christ. So we will pursue this comparison between Jesus and Moses further. Uh, They're both faithful in their respective areas of ministry in God's house, but our our Lord is counted worthy of more glory, more honor than Moses, as the builder of the house receives more honor than the house itself. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for the infinite, incomparable glory of your Son. Uh, We thank you of his excellence, and I, I pray that this consideration would be helpful to our own souls. I I pray that you would cause us to increase our our love for Christ, our devotion for Christ. And I I pray if there's any here that have no sense of what it means to be a holy brethren, no sense of what it means to be a partaker of a heavenly calling, no, no sense of what it means to have confessed Christ as Savior, that, that you would remove the veil and you would show them what a pure, eternal, glorious Savior is found in the person of Christ for their eternal good and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.